Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue on now with episode three, and in this episode we're going to cover part three and part four. So part three titled The Law of the Tendential Fall and the Rate of Profit, and part four, The Transformation of Commodity Capital and Money Capital into Commercial Capital and Money Dealing Capital. So before jumping into it, you know the spiel. If you happen to have landed here, go check out the other episodes, and please go check out the episodes I've done on Adam Smith, on David Ricardo, on Capital Volume 1, Capital Volume 2, and that'll give you a pretty good idea about what's going on here. So let's start here with Part 3, titled The Law of the Tendential Fall in the Rate of Profit, and Chapter 13, titled The Law Itself. So the rate of surplus value is S over V. That is the amount of surplus extracted over how much is paid for in labor. So if you pay somebody $10 for their labor, but you charge $20, $10 above that labor, let's pretend for a moment, even though it's impossible, let's just pretend you aren't spending anything on raw materials or machines or anything. Then you have a surplus value rate of 100% because $10 is going to wages and $10 extra is coming out of that. So the end product that was made is a $20 thing, which is what the labor created, but the laborer is only earning $10 of that. So 100% in this case is the rate of surplus value. Now he contrasts that with the rate of profit. The rate of profit is going to refer to that $10 surplus, now not divided by the amount spent on wages, but instead the amount spent on the entirety of capital, so or spent in capital, being the amount spent both on wages and on constant capital, like machines, raw materials. And by dividing that, by doing a relationship or a comparison between those two, you can find the profit rate. Now we've already covered this a bit, so there's a little bit of recap, but in any case, we have these two different uh, rates here. Now what he's going to show in this entire part, that is part three, he's going to show how the rate of profit, which is that amount of surplus taken out of labor divided by the entirety spent as capital on labor and raw materials and machines, he's going to show how this profit rate over the course of time is tendentially so the term tendentially, tendentially here is referring to the tendency for it to fall. So there might be spikes in which it increases and periods in which it increases, but on the total, it is going to come down. He is showing how the profit rate as capitalism progresses comes down. And this might seem like totally outlandish for some to think, but I think that the argument he gives for it is really quite good. And I've done an episode just on this idea, the tendential fall in the rate of profit. And in that one, that was more of an introduction. Here, we're really going to get into the weeds of it. But if you want, you can easily find that on this channel or podcast form. You can just type in the tendential fall in the rate of profit and you'll find it there. So what would be required for the rate of profit to fall? Well, one thing that could happen is that more money is being spent on or more capital is being spent on machinery and raw materials, those things that don't add value to an end product, to a commodity. 
So more money is spent on those things, which means that the amount that is going to be divided from or in relation to the amount of surplus earned is going to be greater. So let's think of this with numbers. And I want to keep this as easy as possible. So let's say you had a business that spends $10 on constant capital, $10 on wages, and earns an extra $10 at the end of the day. So what that means is that let's say it makes shoes, this enterprise makes shoes, $10 is spent on the machine, $10 on labor, and then $10 extra is taken out of uh, that labor, which means at the end of the day, they're able to sell a shoe for or a pair of shoes for $30. But the capitalist only spent 20. So 10 plus 10 of wages and constant capital. Now, because the surplus value is 10, that means that the rate of surplus value is 100% because $10 was spent on wages. However, the rate of profit is only 50% because you have 10, not in relationship or divided by 10 spent on wages, but instead divided by 20, the addition or the sum of what was spent on wages plus what was spent on constant capital. Now, okay, great. This enterprise has now earned, or the capitalist has now earned $10 on top of the sale of these shoes. It, you know, this is all, this is just hypothetical, but just bear with me. Now what they can do with that $10, you know, they have many options, but they're probably going to want to spend that $10 in order to refurbish their machines, in order to maybe buy new machines that are going to work faster, that are going to be able to dish out more shoes more quickly. And what this means is that over time, let's say they take $5 and spend it on constant capital. So of the $10 earned, they spend it on constant capital. Now let's imagine a new cycle. Instead of $10 spent on constant, $10 on wages, and $10 on surplus, or extracted from, extracted from wages, you now have instead $15 spent on constant capital and $10 spent on wages. Now, assuming that the rate of surplus value stays the same, that is 100%, which would be 10, 10 in surplus value, now the proportions are going to be entirely different. The rate of surplus value is still 100%, but now you don't have 10 in surplus divided by 10 plus 10. You have 10 in surplus divided by 10 plus 15, which is 25. So now you have 10 divided by 25, which is 40% a rate of surplus value of 40% as opposed to 50%. And this is the way that capitalism progresses. You know, if anyone, if you really think about it, you can see that enterprises grow bigger, more spent on machinery to make it grow more efficiently, and less and less is spent on wages. So less money is going to be spent on workers in favor of more automation, which means that more is going to be spent on the things new uh, new kinds of machines, raw materials, more is going to be spent on those things that don't create value, but only impart their value to com uh, made commodities. Now, there are other factors here. If less money is going to be spent on wages, assuming that the rate of surplus value stays the same, then the price of goods is going to come down, which means, of course, that there's going to be less profit rate, or the profit rate is going to lessen. Now, the capitalist is going to do various things to try and offset this. What they might do is they might increase the working day of the fewer workers that are working, or they might make them work harder. They might implement more stringent 
um, I don't means of control and management to make them work harder to extract more surplus value from them or to make them more efficient to make the surplus value extracted happen quicker or really anything like that in order to try and offset this fall in the rate of profit. But as I said, it's tendential. So there might be spikes in which it is increased. Maybe uh, new industries are opened up that allow more people to be employed, more uh, profit to be extracted en masse that allows you know, the overall average profit rate to actually go quite high. And these are all possible scenarios, but the capitalist economy is going to gravitate towards more and more automation because that's how you save dollars. Uh, and this is something that David Ricardo and Adam Smith both feared, which means that there's going to be a decline in the rate of uh, the rate of the profit rate. Jesus. Now, some vulgar economists might say that, okay, yeah, the profit rate has come down, but we've grown so much more efficient. We're able to make so many more things. We're actually able to offset those uh, that decline with all of this new stuff we can make. But the thing is that that only exacerbates the acceleration of the decline in the rate of profit because the same processes are still ensuing. And so capitalists have been aware of this in the past and they've resorted to destroying their own stock, destroying their own machines, even not just workers destroying their machines in order to keep themselves at the same rate of profit or destroying the machines of their competitors, new machines, in order to keep everybody down instead of, you know, another capitalist just buying that machine to remain competitive. And that puts us here into chapter 14 titled Counteracting Factors. So why does the profit rate fall at the rate that it falls? Why not faster or why not slower? Now the rate at which it falls is going to be determined by three factors, or it's going to kind of attain a degree of equilibrium in its fall or its fall is going to be regulated because capitalists are going to try to regulate it with three three in three ways they're going to um, increase the rate of exploitation the rate of surplus value they're going to just simply reduce wages they might cheapen the elements of constant capital so that less money is spent on constant capital they might make uh, there might be such ample supplies of unemployed workers that they could, you know, pay them very little. And this is what is called the Industrial Reserve Army, which I've done an episode actually on this very term itself, if you want to go and find. Or trade can bring down the costs of constant capital in order to make uh, those costs come down. Or there can be an increase in, uh, of a share in capital that is invested to compensate for lowering profit rate. And that earns some people interest. So people are investing in order to offset the, this decline, the overall cost spent on constant capital. And we're going to get into this more as we go on, but interest, the relationship between interest and profit and land owning and rent are going to be very important for Marx here. Now, this brings us to chapter 15, titled The Development of the Laws, the Law of the Tendential Rate of Profit, uh, fall in the rate of profit, the law's internal contradictions. So a rise in surplus value might mean a fall in profit. Now, as this happens, and I've already sort of intimated this, there's going to be the production of more goods to try and offset this lowering profit rate. And this will open the door for overproduction, for speculation, and ultimately crises. 
And this will result in, for Marx, the existence of excess capital alongside a surplus population. Because if you try to offset your falling rate of profit by making more things, there's no guarantee that people are going to be able to buy those things, especially because more of your money is going to buying machines and raw materials than paying laborers, which means that the pool of people that are actually able to buy your products is decreasing because machines aren't going to buy your products. You need people to buy them and they need wages to have the money to buy the things that you're making if you're starting to make them en masse. You know, you're not just making a few things that you could rely upon just a few people to make. You now need even more people to buy your stuff so that you can keep yourself afloat. But this is just a fundamental contradiction because you try to make more things to compensate for the fact that you are hiring fewer people. Now, this is just one of the contradictions here. Another contradiction uh, is that if you were to try to decrease the cost of what you spent on um, on constant capital through trade or just trickery, however you can do it, this is a contradiction insofar as your capital that is being spent is not being valorized because you're trying to spend less and less and to make more and more. And to have that uh, money, that capital that you've earned actually be worth less because you are spending less or demonstrating that it is worth less in the purchase of more constant capital that is supposed to valorize your money or valorize your capital. Now here he offers one of the few points uh, throughout this whole book where he sketches what a post-capitalist world would look like. And that would be a world in this case where the intent is not on the accumulation of profit because that only leads to contradictions uh, because we've seen that profit is going to always, the profit rate is always going to decline. Instead, if the interest was uh, on supplying means to reduce work as a whole, it will no longer exist as a contradiction. So with these improving means of actually producing goods that people need, with these more efficient ways of doing things with better machinery, better techniques, instead of trying to accumulate more profit from that, treating that as a way to make it easier, instead, treating that as a way to make it easier for people to have their needs met would open up the door to a system that is not riding upon its own contradictions. That's good, David. Hit the mic. Very good idea. And these points in the text when he gives us some description or illustration of a post-capitalist world, they're extremely valuable and there are different words that are used to describe it. And I think I've made note of them every single time. Uh, and it, it, someone should go through and, and really put these together in order to uh, present this picture, but it is an underdeveloped one. It's one that is still very much up for interpretation, but it's it's still important and I think it's still very valuable nevertheless. And that puts us here into part four, titled The Transformation of Commodity Capital and Money Capital into com Commercial Capital and Money Dealing Capital, that is Merchant's Capital. And here we get to chapter 16, Commercial Capital. Now to kind of uh, summarize this very briefly, here he's going to consider the people that make money, like bankers, like merchants, without uh, putting production in motion. 
They just make money because other people are producing things and they facilitate trade or do other things like that. They, they hold money even uh, the, and they can earn interest on that. Now that puts us here into then chapter 16, commercial capital. So merchants capital can be divided into either commercial or money dealing capital. So what is commercial capital? Well, you remember how commodity capital enters the market to become money capital? So how the process went, and this was from volume one, is if you had um, a commodity or if you had money, you could go to the market and buy a pair of shoes for $30. Then you could go to another market, hypothetically, and sell those shoes for $35. Now what you've done is transformed your $30 as money capital into a commodity, as commodity capital, into then money capital again, but this money capital is now more than it was when you started. So Mark says this is just the kind of hocus pocus of capitalism. You somehow transformed $30 into $35 as though by magic. So commercial capital is that, except it's money that does not leave the market. It does not leave circulation. Now I fear that I, I painted commercial and money dealing capital as different earlier. I said, or I meant that they, it's the same, referring to the same thing, just so that's clear. So here at this point enters the person that is going to command this commodity or the, sorry, this uh, commercial capital that exists only in circulation in the market. And this is the merchant who buys things on the market to sell them for profit. And here that formula money to commodity to money prime applies. Whereas in the case of a capitalist, they're going to start with raw materials. They're going to start with commodities that they're going to use to make money that they can then take to put back into those raw materials, into those commodities, those means of production to make them more efficient, to earn them more money and so on. Now in the capitalist economy, both of these people are necessary. You need producers and you need merchants. And this makes sense because they are very different fields of expertise. You need people that are going to be actually be able to sell your products, assuming that you don't, you know, people aren't going to have the time to sell the, their own products that are made in their own industries, especially in cases where trade is necessary. So you aren't actually going to sit on a boat and take your fine goods to another country in order to sell them. You know, you'll hire somebody to do that. At least, at least I hope you will. That seems like the most efficient way to do things. And it is important to note that in circulation, no value is created because all value comes back to labor. Even though there's still a mystery about this that Marx hints at toward the end of the book, in any case, labor is what is going to determine the value of objects, of commodities, even if that labor is always going to be uh, up for contention. It's always going to be debated. And so within circulation, the merchant is not actually able to create the value or to add value to the objects being sold. Sure, they might be able to swindle someone. They might lie to somebody and say that uh, the thing they're selling is more valuable or more rare than it actually is. And they might earn like a quick buck off of that. But if you were to take, you really have to take the aggregate the, the the entirety of all exchanges 
to understand or to grasp the fact that no object is going to be able to actually gain value in circulation. Because if that were the case, it would just be there would just be chaos in terms of the production of goods. It wouldn't actually be necessary to have people working. But you need people working because they are what add value. They are who is compensated and they are who is going to be able to buy the products that are sold. But maybe it's worth mentioning just briefly the mystery here. And that is uh, the mystery of the labor theory of value. Because if you say that labor determines value, you then have to ask, well, then what is the value of labor? To which someone might say, well, it is the cost of the means of subsistence for the workers. So what, what is necessary in terms of uh, housing, food, clothing, the, the necessities of life is, are going to determine how much that labor costs. But these things, shelter, clothing, food, are all determined by labor. So what we get at the end of the day is the determination that labor is determined by labor in the capitalist economy, which is just a tautology. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. So in any case, we acknowledge that labor here determines the value of goods. But it's still, it's still quite mysterious as to what that really is. Anyways, what merchants can do, though, is they can maximize the amount of surplus value earned or however much is extracted in production. So if you have a capitalist that hires a bunch of people, they make a bunch of things, that capitalist might not know exactly how much they're going to get for that product or those products. But the merchant is going to be able to figure it out when they actually arrive at the market and figure out what it's worth, assuming they aren't like swindling people. And it'll be their responsibility to uh, maximize that surplus value. Now, certain vulgar economists took this to mean, like Adam Smith and Ricardo, that surplus value is actually created in circulation. It's created where the merchants are, the people actually trading the money, when in fact that is only the representation of the surplus value that is created, that is extracted from the labor power in the factories or the shops or wherever the labor is being conducted. And that puts us here into chapter 17 titled Commercial Profit. Now, commercial profit should technically comply with the entirety of the average profit alongside production. Now, this is kind of a mystery here. So, the fact that merchants, you know, the people who aren't responsible for producing value, uh, but instead just moving value around, the fact that merchants can make profits on top of what the capitalist earns is kind of a mystery if we consider the law of supply and demand. Because if the industrial capitalists could have technically earned that extra money themselves instead of having to pay, instead of having to pay this merchant, why didn't they? So merchants, merchants then reveal, sorry, merchants reveal the extent to which that objects, the commodities, are sold for less than their values, or they're sold for less than they could be sold for to consumers, at least from the perspective of the industrial capitalist of the capitalist who isn't making the entirety of the object's worth because some of that extra surplus value has to go to the merchant who they have to pay to, to sell that thing for them. Now let's say, hypothetically, that if we, we take an industry, let's say shoemaking, and we found that the average profit of those industries is 
which means that the object is sold at the end of the day for a value, for a, for a dollar amount, that when compared to what is spent on constant and variable capital, when we compare those two, we find that the profit rate is 20%. But we also know we could factor in the fact that there is a merchant being paid to actually sell that good. So the amount that is actually earned in production in the profit as profits in production that is earned to the capitalist is not going to be 20% because some of that has to go to the merchant who is selling it. Let's say it's 2%. So now only 18% profit is earned to the capitalist who has put to, put forward all of this labor or has hired up all of this labor power and put it to work in order to then earn in their mind 20% when really it's only 18%. However, and the complexity here is really, you, you can't understate this. However, because we know that the merchant does not add value, we know that that 2% from 18 to 20 is not going to actually add anything to, uh, is not added value to that end product. It is just kind of swindling on top of what was actually added in terms of labor. So the real amount is 18% if we take the actual average that is earned in production, but there's a kind of magic supplement to that in terms of this 2% on top of it. Now this problem gets trickier when we consider the fact that the idea about the average rate of profit, which Marx is showing that, you know, it's really tied to in the capitalist economy to production. Historically, it was determined by merchants and it was determined within circulation. So you'd compare what things were actually sold for in relation to other things and how that related to the socially necessary labor, socially necessary production that would go into the production of other things, other uh, similar things in the, in the same industry. And these were kind of two separate domains, that is merchant capital or commercial capital and production capital. And it is only as capitalism really progresses that they become blended to be the same thing. And you have the vulgar economists and other people like that who only contribute to this idea by saying that value is created in circulation. So suddenly there's a blurring of the line between the two. There's a blurring of the line between the value created in production and the value created within circulation. And down the rabbit hole further we go, further down the rabbit hole we go. So what happens then with workers who work for merchants? Because it's never, you know, you're not just a merchant sitting on your own selling this stock. You know, you probably have people working for you. If you're moving uh, shipments across overseas, you need sailors. You need uh, people to pick up the, the, the goods on one end to load them on one other end. You know, whatever. You have workers working for these merchants. How do they fit in? If the person who they're working for is not creating surplus value, then are these workers, these who are probably wage earners, are they not creating surplus value? Well, they're certainly still workers, but they are not, uh, they are not the source of the merchant's wealth. The source of the merchant's wealth is still the industrial capitalist and that money that is going, that 2% that we just kind of arbitrarily designated here, that 2% 
on what is sold in production is just being then distributed in terms of wages to these wage earners, which means that it is from industry that these other unproductive um, professions, which isn't, it's not to knock those professions, they're necessary, but they aren't creating value. These other professions are earning their money, which only signals that in order to cover the costs of those people who are doing these tasks on things that don't actually create value in the capitalist economy, what this means is that there's going to be need to be so much extracted in terms of surplus value from the labor that is done in industry, not only to cover that capitalist's desires, but to also cover all of these other people's needs, all of these other people's wages who are necessary to sell those products. And the same applies to uh, have upkeep for commodities that are put on the market that, you know, that they might get destroyed. So you're going to need uh, some extra money in order to cover that. You're going to need extra capital to cover the longevity of objects or commodities that sit on shelves for so long that aren't sold quickly and so on. Everything that goes above what it costs to make and sell an object, if they are just sold by the capitalist, is going to need to come out of the total uh, sum of surplus value that is extracted from the workers. And as capitalism progresses, this is going to need to go up and up and up. And this is especially true when we also consider the ways that certain needs are going to have to be met that extend beyond just the basic necessities. So in like North America, uh, where healthcare is provided by um, some employers, like in Canada, or, or in the United States where some employers provide health care, and the same in Canada, whatever. That is only possible because there is that much more being extracted from workers who create value that is sold and earn a country money that could then be allocated to everybody else to earn their, um, their health care so that you know, they can live good lives. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it shows that the capitalist economy, as it progresses, intensifies the amount of surplus value that it is extracting from the workers, which again, there's nothing really inherently wrong with that. It's just that the amount that is extracted should be done in accordance with the will of the people, not in accordance with the will of a few greedy capitalists who are just going to take 99% of that money for themselves and then just run off and buy yachts and stuff with it or just increase their own uh, accumulation of capital. But in any case, I, I digress here. So the merchants' employees don't actually create surplus value. These wage laborers don't actually create surplus value. They help the merchant appropriate the surplus value of others, of other industrial capitalists. Still, though, the merchant wants to keep costs down, so they're going to want to pay their workers very little. But the merchant likely has buildings, you know, they have transport, so they need to sell above all those costs, which reduces their share, because they're going to need, out of that 2% that they're going to earn in the sale of those goods, they're going to need to cover all of these other costs, which reduces the amount that they make, or they're going to appropriate more from the industrial capitalists. So instead of 2%, they might do some trickery and then make it so that they're earning 3% or 4%. Now, from the perspective of the industrial capitalist, all the merchant's costs, that is building, transport, workers, 
all appear as a hindrance or viewed as a hindrance to the accumulation of profit because the capitalist knows that this merchant is going to need to take a cut that is so big as to cover all of their costs. Whereas for the merchant, and the vulgar economists really see it this way, all of these things are seen as a site of the creation of value, even though that's not really true. So here we move into chapter 18, titled The Turnover of Commercial Capital, Prices. So for the industrial capitalists, the turnover process goes, as I've already said, you have a commodity, you sell that commodity for money or in the form of the means of production, and then you create a, you create a good, like a commodity, you sell that commodity for money, and then you take that money and put it back into your means of production and valorize it. You make it more productive. You make it earn you more money in like with um, like in with labor. Now the turnover of commercial capital looks a little bit different. As I've said, instead you start with money, you buy a commodity and then sell that money, sell that commodity, sorry, to earn, earn more money. So the turnover of commercial capital is only repeated buying and selling, whereas in industry, it involves value creation and renewal of what Marx titles the reproduction process. It contributes to illusion that value originates in exchange, when in fact, as I think I've made pretty clear, it does not. And that puts us here into money dealing capital, or chapter 19, money dealing capital. So the entire process, that is of production and circulation, depends upon the circulation of money capital. The existence of, the lar of a large supply of money capital necessitates an entire enterprise of money storage, transport, protection, bookkeeping, just to keep it running. And this grows more and more necessary as capitalism develops and more and more value is extracted from workers, more and more wealth is created. There are going, there's going to be, need to be more maintenance of all that wealth. And one enterprise that does this is, is a bank. And a bank has many uses. It protects your money. It valorizes your money because it'll then invest the money for you and earn you some and it takes some off of that. It will facilitate trade, especially trade between different countries with different currencies. And so it is necessary for global expansion of capital. Now banks or other enterprises that do this kind of work aren't productive labor. They aren't creating value. They they're getting paid only from the pool of surplus value that is actually earned out of workers. And that puts us here into chapter 20, historical materialism on merchants' capital. So to be clear, merchants' capital is autonomous from circulation, uh, the circulation sphere of industry. It is the type of capital that is forever confined to circulation. You know, whereas if you had, uh, if you were a capitalist and you sold your own product, sure, you'd dip your toes into the market, into circulation, but you know you, you don't spend all your time there. Whereas merchant's capital is capital that just exists within the circulation. And here we are getting hints of the stock market, as you've probably been able to gather. Now, as far as the history of trade and trading capital go, it predates capitalism, interestingly enough. It reaches, well, <laughs> it's probably not surprising. I mean, there was money, there was trade, before there was capitalism. It reaches its peak under capitalism, however, when things are made uh, kind of, um, there's mass production and mass consumption, and not only production and consumption for subsistence. So while you did have trade and you did have merchants' capital before capitalism, 
they attain their, they reach their pinnacle under capitalism because there's just so much extra wealth floating around that can be easily picked up. And I say easily with a little asterisk, of course, it's not easy, but these people have weaseled their way into these positions. And it is largely, that is, commercial capital is largely a precondition for capitalism because, number one, it helps concentrate wealth, and number two, it facilitates and permits exchange on a grand scale. So when capitalism enters the picture, industry begins to perform a more significant function than trade, that is, subordinating it. And so producers can be their own merchants. You know, you didn't have just specific like dynasties making things or creating wealth or determining what uh, can, can be wealth. What you saw with this progression of money circulating around was people in the form of like the petit bourgeois could create like these are people who had a little bit of wealth and they might have been able to just hire an extra hand or something uh, to help them work on stuff that they could then use to go to the market and sell it in order to earn a little bit of extra money for themselves. They weren't just content with earning enough to keep themselves alive. They could earn more on top of that. Now, besides trade, there's also such a thing as interest-bearing capital. And we're going to get into this as we go on, but it's I think it's worth noting now that interest-bearing capital was antagonistic to trading capital and industrial capital. Interest-bearing capital is almost like a lower form of trade in that it doesn't even require the movement of any value. Interest-bearing capital just kind of sucks value off of other people, both merchants and, and uh, industrial or, or and capitalists. Now, ideally, in a post-capitalist world, and this is just my brief musings on this, the total amount that is earned is going to go to the people that made it. And there would be a free recognition that these people are all their own individual subjects that earned and attributed value, created value in the form of goods that were traded to other people. Now, this would then open the door for a necessity to um, allocate funds that would go to take care of those people who couldn't necessarily work. Like, you know, in the most rudimentary basic example, like children, maybe elderly people who aren't able to actually participate in the, uh, in the arena where value is created in production. Now, I'd be very curious what anyone has to say about this, because like I said, the sketch for a post-capitalist world is pretty flimsy in Marx. Um, and I'm, I say that with a lot of confidence, having read a lot of Marx. It's not very clear. There's a ton of interpretation, hence all the different derivatives of uh, communism, be it Maoism or be it Stalinism or what we saw, you know, with Castro, whatever. There are so many different interpretations of it. But in a world of globalized capitalism, there's still, I assume, going to be a recognition that markets are going to still need to be run. And these markets are now going to be need to be run, into, that is, in a post-capitalist world, in such a way as to allocate the most money to the people that earned that uh, or that created that value. But taking an amount that was agreed upon in order to then spend money on those areas that don't create value, like in bookkeeping, you know, to be able to keep track of all this trade in order to take care of uh, sick people, to take care of people with special needs and so on. 
And then would that demand or require the formation of a kind of government under this system where it's not purely just free individuals doing whatever they want, but some kind of a body that is going to help determine how to properly allocate and spend these funds, which I dare say would somewhat resemble a tax, but we could, you know, get into the weeds of that. Obviously, I acknowledge that there is a, a lot of weight to that term. Anyways, I'm, I'm rambling here. And yeah, I'll close that out here. And next week, we're going to start on episode four, my episode four, which is going to take over from part five, titled The Division of Profit into Interest and Profit of Enterprise. And that'll be with chapter 21, titled Interest Bearing Capital. And yeah, uh, I hope you like what I did. For any For those that are listening as I do this, you're the real heroes here. Uh, thanks a lot. Helps for the algorithm and other uh, things. And yeah, uh, catch you next time. Take care.